Week four, faith for revival. Well, Elijah has gone to King Ahab. He's called a drought, and three and a half years later, after being hidden, God calls Elijah to present himself to King Ahab. That's where we were at last week, the hidden places. Um, Elijah had been hidden for three and a half years from the man that wanted to kill him because Elijah said, hey, it ain't going to rain till I say it's going to rain. And then guess what? didn't rain. So, of course, King Ahab's mad because it ain't raining. The crops are failing. They're, they're, they're wanting more water. They're, they're getting to a place of starvation. And, you know, they're getting hangry and they're getting mad and they're not liking Elijah. And all of a sudden, Elijah presents himself to King Ahab. And we saw last week that Obadiah, who was basically the manager of the palace, he was the manager of the palace under King Ahab, and his very name meant servant of Yahweh, which for some reason he survived. He, was, he worshipped Yahweh. We saw last week that when Jezebel was trying to kill all the prophets of God, Obadiah hid a hundred of the prophets in, of, of Yahweh in two caves to protect them. Well, Obadiah, he, he managed the whole palace of King Ahab, and we talked about how sometimes God has you in places that aren't exactly what you would feel like is the most glorifying to God, but you know he's called you there. Like, like you talk about wanting to wake up to truth, God has you in places sometimes that don't seem like they're the most glorifying to God, and maybe that's why he has you there to turn it into a place of glory to God, right? So... He's, he's got Obadiah there, and Obadiah's worshiping God, and, 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 and all of a sudden, on an assignment from Ahab, he meets Elijah, and he's supposed to go back to Ahab and say, hey, Elijah's here to meet you. And after all this, they present themselves, and, and God was basically, he was asking those who followed him to finally come out and present themselves to the government for such a time as this. Not just Elijah, but Obadiah as well. He's saying, I, I have had you in hiding for three and a half years. I've had, you I've had you concealed, if you will. I haven't let King Ahab see, Obadiah, that you are totally devout to me. I've kept you to myself so that you could be in your place. Elijah, I've had you by the carrot book. I've had you in the cave. I've, I've had you hidden these times so that I have you here for such a time as this to show the people that the worship of Baal was false worship and I am not going to have it anymore. And I don't know about you, but I'm waiting for that time. I mean, aren't you just sick of people like thinking that you can just worship who you want and you're going to be good and you, you love them and you're trying to like tell them like you're, you're literally going to burn for eternity and they're just like, well, I don't believe I'm going to burn and it's just kind of like a dead like road, if you will. It's just so sickening sometimes and you want people just wake up. Your gods are false. Your causes are pointless. Get in line with the truth. Is anyone there with me. I, I, just get, I get tired of that sometimes. Well, and Yahweh at this point, he's like, all right, it's time to show myself to all of you who think I'm false. So as a recap, in the last six verses of last week, this is what happened in 1 Kings 18, verses 16 through 21. Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come. Ahab went out to meet Elijah, and when Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, Is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? Now, remember, he's calling Elijah a troublemaker because he's blaming Elijah on what? There ain't no rain. Because Baal is the sky god. So they're thinking, okay, well, our sky god is mad at Elijah, and that's why he's holding back rain. You know, that's the most obvious thing. They couldn't be wrong. Right? I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers. You ever, you ever had someone tell you that? Yeah, you and your family. I know none of y'all, none of y'all. For you've refused to obey the commands of the Lord, and you've worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all of Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who were supported by Jezebel. So Now remember, Jezebel is King Ahab's wife. And Je Jezebel wants one thing. She doesn't just want a little temple built 
for Baal and, and poles put up for Asherah. She doesn't want just some of the nation to worship her gods. She wants to completely get Yahweh out of everything. Out of the government, out of the schools, out of the churches, out of the temple. Does this sound familiar? You want to know what the problem is? There's things at work. Stop blaming the people and realize who's at work behind it. Okay? Okay. Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. And then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver? And that word waver we talked about was the word that meant, How much longer are you going to dance back and forth? Hobbling between two opinions. If the Lord's God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. But the people were completely silent. The people were silent because they just got called out. He says, y'all been dependent on a God that's been proven to be powerless, and you don't even know where you stand. Pick a side. And this was their chance. This was their chance to say, okay, well, we'll pick Yahweh. This was their chance to completely cross over, but they couldn't. They stayed quiet. Why do you think they stayed quiet? Because for three and a half years and more, they devoted their lives to a king and a king's wife who if you said you worship Yahweh, they killed you. So when they said pick a side, it wasn't for them as simple as we worship Yahweh. Because in their minds, the thing that came to the forefront was what is going to be the consequence of proclaiming his name? They couldn't. They stayed quiet because they valued their life more than losing their life in the name of God. Luke 17, If you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you let your life go, you'll save it. I wonder how many of us live in this exact posture where when it comes time to be presented as a believer, are you willing to lose anything to stand for God? Because that's exactly where we're at even now in this nation and moving forward. That it, you're going to have to risk it all eventually if you're going to say you follow Yahweh. And there are those who proclaim his, now, his name now real easily. But what's going to happen when, you, when it comes down to you'll lose your job. You'll lose your benefits. You'll lose your insurance. And then you start thinking, well, I can't afford my house and I can't afford to do this and I can't afford to do that. When you start thinking about the consequence, will you still stand? Do you really believe that God will provide? That's exactly where these people are at because they were like, well, we know that the God we've been worshiping hadn't been working and we we're kind of getting this idea that your God is real, but we don't want to die, so we're just going to keep silent. And I can just hear the rhetoric of Christians now. I'm just not going to say anything because God knows the intent of my heart. No, he knows that you wouldn't stand up for him. And you're right. He knows your heart. But you don't. Is that too, that too much? Mm -hmm. So they remain quiet. Not willing to choose Yahweh. So Elijah proposes something. Look at verse 22. Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord's who's left. Now remember, this is for all they know. Because guess what? Obadiah's hit a hundred of them. Right? This is for all they know, Elijah's the only one left. I'm the only prophet of the Lord who's left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, on, on the altar, but I won't set fire to it either. Then call the name of your God, and I'll call the name of my God. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood, that's God. And all the people agreed. That, that's bad. Can you imagine that happening now? 
Like, this is not to offend anyone in here, because I'm not taking a stand either way. This is just an example. You get your vaccine, and I'll get my vaccine. Right? I see some of y'all got offended already, because when I just said, it's not a, I'm not trying to make a point. Get your vaccine, get your mask. I don't care. Get over it, right? Like, pick, do something. Just worship God. So, Elijah's like, come on. Let's see whose God's real. Elisha was very careful. He gave the prophets of Baal every advantage. See, he didn't just let them pick the sacrifice. He says, y'all go pick both bulls. And then out of those two, y'all pick the one you're going to sacrifice out of the two. The only thing that they were not allowed to provide was what? The fire. The fire had to come from a supernatural origin. The fire had to come from your God, Baal, or my God, Yahweh, that y'all won't pick a side about. Remember, they thought Baal was the sky God. If he was real, here's a chance to prove it. Elijah is putting himself and his God, Yahweh, on the line before the entire gathered nation of Israel. You know what that took? Faith. I'm really tempted to sing songs during this message. Like, you, you got to have faith. <laughs> Sorry. Faith, faith, faith. And, and the only way he had enough faith, 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 the only way he had enough faith to put that kind of demand like, hey, you get the bulls, you pick the sacrifice, you call on your God, I'll call on my God. Whatever fire comes from, that's God. The only way he had that much faith to put that kind of thing on the line was simply one thing, years of daily dependence. He had developed a lifestyle of daily dependence, and when you develop a lifestyle of daily dependence, it'll give you something called stupid confidence. Bold confidence in who God is. I think we need a little bit more of that in the church. Like not this wavering, maybe he'll show up, but let me get my life in such a posture of depending on him that when I have to have faith, it's not going to waver. You see, Elijah knew history. You know, he, he, he's read the text. He's read the passages in Judges. He knows that God can send fire for sacrifice. But learning daily dependence and God never failing him, you see, it gave him confidence in a greater measure of faith. You see, we love to marvel at people who have great faith. And we say things like, man, I wish I had that kind of faith. But we won't put into practice the daily submission to depending on God in order to obtain a greater measure of faith. Let me show you something in Romans 12.3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, everyone, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God dealt to each one a what? Measure of faith. God has given each and every one of us a measure of faith. Because of that, we have no basis of pride or to consider ourselves superior to one another based off the gifts we operate in. Elijah was not prideful because he had the gifting of a prophet. I'm going to let that sit for a minute. Elijah did not, was not prideful of, I'm a prophet, and because I'm a prophet, I'm going to lay down the gauntlet. Had nothing to do with it. Because even though Elijah had the gifting of a prophet, 
and the last among the 100 others hidden, he had to grow from a measure of faith that God had given him to a greater measure beyond what was given in the beginning so that he could carry out a confident, faith-filled assignment. It, because, remember, Elijah was at a place where he was a prophet who said, it ain't going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And then he had to get hidden and learn how to depend on God for three and a half years. That meant, even though he was a prophet three and a half years ago, the measure of faith granted then had to grow to a point where he had faith to throw the gauntlet down when it was time to throw it down. And where some people get messed up is they depend on their gift and the measure of faith they have never grows to align with where their gift wants to take them. So they don't depend on faith, they depend on a gift. <laughs> Many get arrogant in their gift or function and they never depend on God because they forget they have a measure of faith that actually needs to grow from learning to depend despite the gift they have in the Spirit. You see, when, when you're redeemed, when you, when, when you become a new person in Christ, you, 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 get, you get a new identity in Christ. You, there's a gift on you. It could be mercy, it could be a prophet, it could be all, all these different things. There's this gift put on you. But just because you get a gift put on you don't mean your faith automatically increased. I can tell you, just because I teach don't mean the gift increases my faith. What increases my faith is the daily relationship and dependence on God in every decision I have to make. And I think the problem in the church is we get prideful in great gifts so we never learn how to depend and we wonder why we never go anywhere. <laughs> Am I talking to anyone? So when the assignment came for Elijah to put himself and Yahweh on the line, he didn't do it out of arrogance or pride. Or even because it was the measure of faith he was given. His measure increased out of the dependence he had on God every day for the past three and a half years. So that when God gave him the assignment, hey, I want you to go to the king who wants to kill you. And I want you to get all the prophets together on a mountain. And you're going to tell them that you're going to build two altars. They get to pick the bulls and then they get to pick the sacrifice. And you're going to call fire down from the heaven and what God answers is God. Three and a half years ago, he was still questioning whether or not he was going to get food from a raven. You really expect that God is going to answer the church's prayer of total revival over Savannah if you can't depend on him to provide for your job or your food or your family? You know why God ain't sending the rain? Because we haven't prepared the flipping ground for the rain. <laughs> God carried him through this daily dependence to grow his faith to get Elijah ready for an assignment. God has assignments for the church. He's got assignments for you. But he will not whisper the assignment until you are ready to walk it out when your measure of faith matches the assignment, the weight of the assignment. This is... 1 Kings 18, verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first. Humility, right? For there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls. Prepare it. Call on the name of your God, but don't set fire to the wood. So... They prepare one of the bulls. They place it on the altar. Then they call in the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced. I, I was going to dance, but 
my measure of faith hadn't grown that level. And then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. Shout louder. He scoffed. For surely he's a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming. Maybe he's relieving himself. Y'all realize what Elijah's doing? Maybe he went to the bathroom. With a bathroom with an F, not the TH. Maybe he's away on a trip or asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up. I love Elijah. Now, we're, <laughs> we're laughing at this, but look deeper what's going on other than Elijah mocking them. I mean, we all know that Baal's a false god, right? We know it's not going to work, but look closely. They prepared a sacrifice on the altar. So they understood what to do with blood sacrifices for God. They called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. That means they had a very devoted prayer life that we're seeing here lived out. They danced and hobbled around the altar they made. They were devoted worshipers. Like they danced like David danced, right? That, that's, that's their mindset. You see, you can understand blood sacrifice, atonement, prayer. You can worship all day and, 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 and practice it all night. But if you don't know who you're giving it to, don't be surprised when it don't work. Remember, just like they're dancing now, they were dancing back and forth on beliefs hours prior. And just like half the church of today, look at what the prophets of Baal did. Look at verse 28. So they shouted louder. Following their normal custom. Because, you know, when the stuff you're doing in church don't work, just do it in a better way, right? Do it with a new wineskin. We got to move from traditional to contemporary. Our worship isn't effective. Let's change the style of it. That's the answer. Oh, the piano and the organ wasn't working. Let's just put a lot of watts behind the sound system. That's going to shake heaven. <laughs> they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. They did their custom in the same way, just more extravagant. And by the way, cutting themselves, it was simply a sign of devotion. So they had devotion to being zealous, but they had no knowledge of who God was. You ever known people who had a passion for God, but no knowledge of who he is or how he operates, but you still can't teach them a dang thing? And they kept doing it until evening and the same result, no reply, no response. You can't move a God that you don't know just because of the length of time in worship among a congregation. But isn't that what the church does? We want revival. So we get the church together and we do the same thing we've always done in a bigger tent or a bigger arena with a great worship band and a powerful speaker and we're trying to move God and nothing's happening because it's not about getting the practice if you don't know who you're practicing it unto and what's happened in the church we do real great about coming together but nothing about your private life knows who he is so when I ask you a simple question like what has God done during your week you do what the prophets of Baal do Ooh, ouch. Is that too, too hard? I don't care, I'm just. You can't move a God that you don't know. The congregation should be coming together in agreement 
with what we already know alone without the need for raving all day. So that when we release the raving loud praise, it's real and not show. So after, so after doing this for an entire day, it's Elijah's turn. Is this? Okay. Verse 30. It might not be long tonight. Y'all ain't got no measure of faith. Verse 30. Then Elisha called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. Elijah wanted to get the attention of all the people, not on him. Not on him. But for one reason, he wanted them to see that this was all about the God that they have rejected. And the way he did it was not by building a new thing. Can you throw that scripture back up there, please, Leah? Look at that again. It says, they all crowded around him as he repaired the altar that had been torn down. Just leave that up for a minute. He gathered them around to get them focused on the God they had rejected. And he didn't do it by building a new thing. He said, let's revive the old thing that's been torn down. You see, there was once an altar of God at Mount Carmel in Israel, and it had been torn down. And Elijah said, let's revive and restore what was forgotten and thrown away with and done away with. See, revival isn't the goal. It's the process by which God infiltrates everything all over again. Revival is let's restore what's been lost so that I can have you back to do whatever I want to do. Revival is not the goal. One of our core values is we're passionate about revival. Why? Because we want to restore what's been torn down so that we can be in a posture of when God says do it, we're ready. And just like in the days of Elijah, the church has lost something. The altars have been torn down. The presence of God has been done away with and worship experiences have replaced his presence. We come for encouragement and we come to experience something and we don't even know how to define what the something is. We don't even know how to pursue him in our alone times anymore. And before we see the outpouring of God, we have to restore what's been torn down. <clears throat> what's been torn down? I'll tell you what I believe has been torn down. The idea, number one, that God actually lives in you and through you. Don't tell me you believe that God lives in you and you don't believe in gifts of the Spirit. It's not possible to believe in one or the other. And if that's too bold, deal with it. And I'm not trying to come down on those people. It's just I'm trying to identify the need for awakening. And the, and the way we get awakening is not to beat them on the head with your wrong. It's for us to have the testimony of the stuff working. Don't go beat up a cessationist without them seeing it actually working in your life. If I may say so, that's where I've gotten it wrong. I can talk to people all day about, well, your theology's wrong, but until they see the witness of the power in my life, I ain't got no business telling them where they got it wrong. What's been torn down that you don't need to depend on, the, what needs to be torn down, you don't need to depend on a religious figure called a pastor. You need to learn how to depend on God because he is one-on-one -on -one with you. He has put pastors to help, but they are not the one to depend on. What needs to be torn down? Well, or what has been torn down? I think that 
you're actually held accountable to a lifestyle representing him. I mean, because I hear it all the time in the Christian life. Well, God has grace and he understands. That's not what grace is. Grace is not excusing you to live how you want. Grace is, even though you don't deserve a way back, here it is. That's grace. It's not, here's the way back, and if you don't come back to me in all my way, that's totally good. That's not grace. What's been torn down? I believe that we actually have to seek him has been torn down. When all you hear is Jesus died and you believe in him and you're good to go, the idea of sanctification and walking it out has been totally thrown away with. I believe we need to rebuild those truths in the church. Let me tell you why. That's what was torn down with the very ones who got to a place where they replaced the worship of Yahweh with the worship of a God who wasn't showing up. And that's exactly what's going on in this nation. Anything is worship but the one who actually has the true power and authority. And they don't worship the one with true power and authority because no one wants to be held accountable to anything but what they want. And Christians sometimes are the worst. So Elijah calls it out. We, we got, we're not going to build a new altar. We're going to restore the broken ones. The more and more I study scripture and build my relationship with God, the more I understand that the new wineskin is the restoring of one that's been done away with. Because the old wineskins that are we've kind of gone into, I believe are the ones that we've made to replace. If that makes any sense at all. So, Elijah begins reviving the thing that once was. Look at verse 31. So he took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. He used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. And then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He, not, not a huge trench, right? I mean, you can get three gallons of water at, you know, Publix. Not a, lot, not a lot of water. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars of water, pour the water over the offering and the wood. <clears throat> After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. When they finished, he said, do it a third time. So as they did, as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. So he rebuilds the altar. He prepares a sacrifice on it. And then he says, I know y'all spent the past, you know, 18 to 20 hours dancing like fools and crying out the bell and cutting yourselves and praying, and nothing happened. But I'm going to make this even harder for me. The stuff that's supposed to catch fire, let's just drench it in water, right? He builds the altar, he prepares the sacrifice, he pours water all over it with four large pot, pots <coughs> three times. The altar was drenched in water so it, it would be harder for it to be lit up on fire. And not only was this a lot of water, but think about it. What are they in? They're in a drought. Talk about putting your neck on the line just in case it don't work. You're wasting water. It ain't exactly something you want to do. But it shows how confident Elijah was that he was where God wanted him to be and he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. Why? Because his faith had grown to a measure out of depending on God every single step of the way. So no matter what he did, the thought of this was a waste never came into his mind. I think so many times we hesitate on doing things for God because we wonder, is this a waste of my time? And then the thought of, is this a waste of my time, sometimes because it becomes the decision maker of putting forth how we're going to spend our time. Verse 36, 
at the usual time for offering, the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you've brought them back to yourself. You see, 50 years before this is when King Jeroboam separated the people of Israel from the people of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, in the evening was actually the time of sacrifice according to God's commandment. God commanded offer the sacrifice at evening. And the, the prophets of Baal, or the, the, yeah, the way they did sacrifices was in the morning. Look how far separated they were from God. And if I may be so bold, it's not much different in the church of today. God said give the sacrifice of praise and worship in the evening. Why do you think Saturday nights is so much better than Sunday mornings? Okay, that was way too much. Okay. Okay. I'm just, I'm just reading the Bible, blaming on God. <laughs> Did you know that the start of the Hebrew day is actually evening, not morning? Okay. So Elijah says, Israel, we're doing this in Yahweh's time that y'all have forgotten. And even though you've forgotten him, he is your God, and I am his servant. You see, he wants them to know none of this was his clever idea. You see, Elijah was in such a relationship with God that they deemed false that he was following every command down to detail, and Elijah wanted the people to know, all this is about to happen because this is not my way. This is not mine. This is God's plan. The gauntlet that I've thrown down, the, you pick the bulls and you pick the sacrifice and you pick the time. This is all God's deed. None of this was me acting like a big time prophet. I was doing all of this out of obedience because of my dependence on him. And I believe that we have forgotten how to walk out of faith just as much as learning how to depend on God to increase it. Because maybe you've got faith, but are you at a place in your relationship with God that you'll walk out confidently every detail he asks of you, even if it's extreme, ridiculous, and doesn't make sense? Because look at verse 37 again. It says, O Lord, answer me, answer me so that these people will know that you are God and that you've brought me or that, that you brought them back to yourself. He says, answer me. Answer me so that they know you. Can you pray that prayer? Can you pray, a pr God, where are you at? You, you answer me right now. You know why Elijah could pray and put that demand on God? You can only pray that if you know you have fallen him in every single step. And let me just tell you, you are automatically disqualified in praying that prayer if you still haven't forgiven someone. Well, I just can't bring myself to do it. Figure it out. It's just not my time. It's been past your time. God's going to tell me when he did. It's in the Bible. It was some thousand years ago. I'm waiting for God to tell me when to forgive him. Read. It's not going to be at another point. He's already told you. He's waiting for you to obedience so that you can hear him on his next talking point. So Elijah says all this. And in verse 38, immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. Now, I want to point this out. It says, immediately, the fire of the Lord came down. 
Elijah didn't pray the prayer all day and dance and shout. He prayed one prayer after three and a half years of walking out faith and immediately fire fell. The prophets of Baal, they had the passion, the commitment, the sincerity, the devotion, even the energy, but they did not have God. The only difference in their prayers was the one they addressed. And fire didn't just take the sacrifice because God says, I will glorify myself. I don't just want the bull. I want the bull. I want the wood. I want the stones that represent the tribes. I want the dust. I want the water. I want the whole flipping thing. And let me just say this. God does not just want the worship. He doesn't want your Saturday nights at 6. He doesn't want your give him 15. He wants the whole flipping temple that is called you. He wants it all. God, we want your fire to burn the area. And we want your fire to fall on the church. Well, when my fire gets to consume it all, you'll get it. Faith for revival. God, send your fire. Send your fire. You won't let me consume everything that my fire wants because you still want the fire to make you famous. I truly believe that's the problem with probably 50% of the church. They want revival so that people see them, not God. We've got to shift where the relationship is, where the passion is, where the want is, where the desire is, where our faith is increasing, where our dependence is. It's got to be a genuine pursuit of him and him alone, nothing to do with how it presents for us. For all Elijah could have known, he could have been killed after this. He didn't know. By the law, he would have been. By the law, he would have been killed the moment he presented himself to King Ahab. But he wasn't looking at law. He wasn't looking at how it should have played out. He was just, God, what's my next step? What's my next step? What's my next step? <clears throat> Verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Isn't that amazing? Then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one of them escape. I love you, Elijah. <laughs> so the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed every single one of them. It was actually the same charge they were given to the prophets of God. What was King Ahab and Jezebel doing the whole time? Who's a prophet of Yahweh? Come here. Kill them. But look at the mercy Elijah had. He said, you hobble them back and forth. Choose one right now. What'd they do? Stayed silent. He gave them the choice. He gave, he gave them a chance. That was the compassion and the grace and the mercy that he didn't deserve, but they still rejected God. And it's a picture of what will happen to anyone who rejects him, no matter how much they believe in what they want to believe. Because we like to say, well, Elijah, that's a really, like, why'd you do that? It's nothing different than what God is still doing today. He's like, you get, you get the choice. You know, but there's no such thing as free will. Right? It goes together. God says, I have a predestined plan. I've marked out every step in your life. Now I'm giving you the free will to choose to walk in it or not. And because of free will, the nation is going to get to a place where I never intended it for, get to, for it to get to. And when it gets to that point, I'm going to ask for a remnant to rebuild my altars. And people are going to get in line with it or not. And the ones that are going to rebuild it are going to be the ones that are depending on me 
and whose faith is growing instead of just thanking me for the measure I gave them. I want them with a burning passion to say thank you for what you've given me. Now, now God says do with it what I've asked you to do with it. Multiply it. What did God ask Adam and Eve to do? Be fruitful and multiply. I've given you a measure of faith. Be fruitful and multiply. I hope this is okay. Gosh. And King Ahab, now he's seen that Baal's fault, which makes the next verse kind of funny because Elijah's like, Ahab, why don't you go get a bite to eat? And Ahab's like, yes, sir. I mean, like, what can Ahab do at this point, right? No threats toward Elijah. The king wasn't like, the king, the, he's like, uh, you are going to die because you just, he's like, no, yeah, I'll get Elijah, whatever you want to do, you know, you, you, okay. But here's what I want to point out. We love to focus on the fire in this chapter. But three and a half years prior to this, Elijah didn't mention to King Ahab, there's going to be fire on the altars. What did he promise Ahab that was coming? He said, it's not going to rain, and it's, and it's going to rain. The promise was rain's coming, not the fire. So look what happens in verse 41. Elijah said to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a rainstorm coming. So, of course, Ahab's like, yeah, you got it. So Ahab went and got something to eat and drink, but Elijah, he climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. You talk about flexible. I can't do that. I mean, I've tried. I mean, that's like, I mean, I, I, I can't do that. You see, Elijah knew that hurt right there. Mm, healing prayers later. So, you see, Elijah knew now that Baal worship had been defeated, the purpose for the drought was fulfilled. Why did he say no more rain? To prove that they were worshiping a false god. Now that he proved that the God was false, he knew that the purpose of the drought was fulfilled so he can now speak, it gonna rain. So now it was time to do what? Ask for the rain. You ever think we ask God for things to rain from heaven when we haven't completed the assignment necessary to release it that held it back in the first place? Because the church comes to their worship gatherings every weekend and we praise God, but no one's fulfilling any assignments so that he can release the rain that he's holding back. You want the rain to fall, you want the fire to fall, gain dependence on him so that your measure of faith increases so that we can start restoring the altars out of assignments he's given us. And as those are restored and as the foundations of the church are restored and as what we are called to do is revive back to life, then by the power of testimony, Think about it. We, we will overcome by the blood of Christ and the word of our testimony. The testimony of the power of God. When we actually start having more of a testimony than just Jesus saved me, that's a great testimony. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that. That's an amazing testimony. But there is more. Like what about what did Jesus do after he saved me? What about what the Holy Spirit did through me for the person who didn't know God and they came to know him? What about all that? Why is it that testimony is only about, look at what he did for me, look at what he did for me. What about the testimonies of what he did through? It's not just one. When all that stuff starts to happen, maybe then the church will be ready for the rain and the fire. 
We want revival, we have faith. But what about walking out assignments and gaining territory back so that the territory is worthy of rain? Verse 43. So he sent to a servant, Elijah, being up on the mountain praying, he says, go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked and he returned to Elijah and said, I, I didn't see anything. Seven times, Elijah told him, go look, nah, go look, nah, go look, nah, I didn't see, go look, nothing, go look. Elijah, are you sure? Now go look, go look. Finally, the seventh time, his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. And the song accompanied the rising of the cloud. <clears throat> but <laughs> you think about that, that's, that's a pretty tiny cloud, right? Now, now, they hadn't seen a cloud in three and a half years. And this tiny cloud is rising from the sea. And then Elijah shouted, Hurry to Ahab and tell him, climb in your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain's going to stop you. I go back to the whole title of this message, Faith for Revival. Why did Elijah have enough faith to tell Ahab, get in your chariot and hurry up because the rain's going to stop you if you don't? Because he has been depending on God every step of the way, and he knew if he just saw that little itty bitty sign that's all he needed to know seven times he was checking as he prayed he was walking by faith not by sight because six times they saw nothing of a sign i think that's something dangerous too in the church we do we look for signs all the time and we say we walk by faith and not by sight but you're defining your faith by a sign Not that all signs are bad, but don't live your life based off of signs. God will give signs. God says, hey, these are the... Can I just... Can I bring something to your... To, 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 to like shut some of thoughts up? God says, I'll give you signs of the end times. And he says, hurricanes, earthquakes, natural disasters. These are the first of many to come. Just because more hurricanes are happening, that does not mean we're close. So, if I see one more Facebook post about it, <laughs> I'm, I haven't seen any from this church. Maybe. <laughs> Seven times. He wasn't getting discouraged because he was praying from promise. You see, and when you don't have faith for what God promises, you give up on prayer when you don't see the answer immediately. If God promises you something, it's not pray to see if, it's a direction in which you pray until. We want revival and awakening, but when God says, here's the promise, we stop when we don't see it. But what if it takes three and a half years? What if it takes seven times? When God promises you something, he says, it's not pray and maybe. This is a direction I want you to shift toward. And all Elijah needed to see was a little cloud as small as a man's hand. And we so often want faith confirmed with big bold and obvious but what if it's in praising in small that we get the big bold and obvious when we take delight in small wins instead of discounting them waiting on the big wins taking delight in the individuals leading one person in God rather than dismissing one so that we can host an event to get 1,000 to an altar when 75% of them just responded to an emotional thing 
Why not take delight in little things, knowing it's a sign of a promise on a way to total outpouring? And look how much Elijah's faith increased. He saw a hand-sized cloud and says, climb in your chariot and get back home, and if you don't hurry, the rain's going to stop you. A cloud that size. And yet so many of us never move on faith until we see it plain as day. Elijah didn't need plain as day. He just needed one little confirmation. Is this speaking to anyone tonight? You've been praying for that family member to be restored, and you're getting frustrated because they're not restored. Maybe you should start praising because you saw that one little thing. You're praying for that breakthrough in your job, and you, and you had that one little thing, right? It's funny because Elijah tells Ahab, get in the chariot before the rain's going to stop you. And look at what happens in verse 45. The soon, and the soon the sky, and soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. And then the Lord, this is where it gets crazy. The Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak in his belt, and he ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. That was a 14-mile run. And he was outrunning a chariot pulled by horses. In a moment, it says the sky was black. That means there were so many clouds that sunlight could not get through. The drought immediately was over. Proving again, Elijah's God withheld the rain and brought the rain. When your measure of faith increases... You give permission for God to do what he wants to do and provide how he wants to provide. And I know it's crazy, but look how God provided for Elijah in protecting him. He was, Elijah was following God every step of the way up to going to the top of a mountain and praying for rain. God knowing that when the rain came, Elijah had no chance to get protected from this rain. So to protect him, Elijah, like, like God, outdid Marvel. You know what I'm saying? Take up your cloak, and Elijah went flash on them all. That's DC. Like I said, outdid Marvel. <laughs> Just kidding. Woo! <laughs> 14 mile run, faster than horses. God will do exactly what He wants to do, He can do whatever He wants to do. All he needs is one who will say yes to whatever he asks. Faithful revival. You want to know how we're going to see it all done? It's when this house becomes full of people who are a bunch of ones that say yes. So I say all that to say let's become a people that say God, that, that's our response to God. Yes. God, you want me to do this thing that just seems like it's totally out of my comfort zone? Yes. It's not, let me pray about it. it I, I get, you ever get frustrated when, like, God told me this, I'm going to pray about it? Think about that for a second. You don't have anything else to pray about. If God told you to do it, start walking it out. 
Let's be yes people. Not maybe, not if, not God. I don't, it doesn't matter if you're ready. Elijah carried out the first assignment. All he had to do was tell the king, it ain't going to rain. And he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready to become flash. Seriously, though, until three and a half years of learning to depend. But it was depending every time God told him to do something. Well, I don't know how to heal the sick, and I don't know how to do this. Because you can't even be faithful and bless the grocery store person by paying their grocery bill. You can't, you can't even be faithful in pray blessings on a president that you don't agree with. Yes, God. It doesn't need to make sense to you. Because he sees everything. So let's just become a yes people so that our measure of faith increases. We restore the things that have been lost so that God can finally send the fire and send the rain. Amen.